Well, thanks so much for singing with us, everybody. It's great to be together and watch and engage together. And if you want, you can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3 if you want to join me. Mark chapter 3, the beginning of the Gospels, and that's where we're going to be. But before we jump in there, I just want to kind of paint a little picture as far as where we're headed the next few weeks. Obviously, we're not together in the same room, all of us together today, but we're going to take a few minutes and talk about something that I think is really important and a key concept. This has really become a a core value for us over the last few years, and I think is something we need to talk about as we begin a new season and a new year. Next week, I'm going to take a few minutes, as we all get back together, we're going to take a few minutes together in the teaching and talk about how uh, eucharismatic, this kind of word we've been using, eucharismatic vision um, or community, a eucharismatic community, is really what our world needs in 2022. With all the changes, all the shifts, everything that's happened through the pandemic, everything we kind of see and experience right now in our moment, I am convinced that the eucharismatic vision that we have is more timely than ever. And so that may be like, whoa, you're, maybe you're trying to sell next week. I just, I'm just bought in on this and we're gonna take a few minutes and kind of develop that further. How you charismatic church in 2022 is really, I think the way of life a church should be living in our moment. And then in two weeks, we are gonna then begin uh, in the letter of Galatians. I know we've been talking about this for a while. We're gonna start in Galatians in two weeks time. And we actually have a guest with us who is a theologian and has done a lot of work on Galatians, but is also a pastor. And they're gonna come and really get the ball rolling as we walk through the letter of Galatians throughout the winter. So we're looking ahead and excited just about these coming weeks amongst all that's going on. With that said, Jesus gets up on a mountain in uh, Mark chapter 3. Read with me. This is what he says. It says this. Mark writes, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed 12, one, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. Now, we've talked a lot about this, um, just kind of the first century world and the context in which Jesus kind of comes in and embodies his teaching and his way in. And what's so fascinating about this particular text is that Jesus is actually calling his disciples to a couple things. One, to be with him, to be immersed in his teaching and his way, and then ultimately to go out and do what he did. Now, for us, if you grew up kind of the flannel board in Sunday school like me, this just makes sense. Jesus calls us to be disciples and let's do it. Let's be with him and let's do what he did. But we can miss kind of the earth shattering, kind of the mind bending reality of what happens here. In the first century, if you know, and again, we've talked about this in the past, so I'm not going to get into too much detail, but at kind of a 30,000 foot kind of view, discipleship in the first century was not mutually exclusive to Jesus. There were many rabbis with many teachings in many ways. And the story goes that if you were a Jewish boy in this time, you would have grown up in kind of like an education system. And you would grow up learning the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and the Old Testament. And there were actually different levels of education that you would move on to. And if you were bright and you were catching it and you were kind of, you know, kind of immersed in this and actually progressing in this, you would move from one level to the next. And so there were levels that literally you would learn the Torah by heart and you would say it orally. You would know it word for word. 
And if you weren't the brightest and the best, what would happen is you wouldn't move on to the next level, but you would be sent to your back, to your parents' trade, to your typically your father's trade, and you would work in the family trade, and that's kind of where you would live your life. And some kids would move on, and it would kind of go deeper and deeper, and if you weren't bright enough, you'd kind of get sent back to the family trade. The final kind of level was almost like an apprenticeship where if you were showing that you were wise and you were growing in the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets, what you would do is you would look to become a rabbi. And the way that you would do that is you would look for another rabbi in that culture and in that time, and you'd basically apply to them, almost like a job interview. You'd go to them and you would give your best, you put your best foot forward and what you've learned and the teachings, and really you would apply to come under the way of this particular rabbi. And the brightest and the best would find a rabbi and they would really take on the rabbi's yoke or teaching as we know it kind of in our day. And they would follow the rabbi wherever they go. The point in all this is it's pretty fascinating here because if you weren't bright enough to get to this level, you would be sent back to the family trade and you would get sent back to kind of what you would do with your families, whether that was a stonemason or a fisherman or whatever. And here you have... Rabbi Jesus, completely flipping the system on its head. And instead of looking for people to apply to him, you know, the best and the brightest and those who know stuff and have become really wise and grown in the law and the prophets, Jesus comes to the very people that have been sent home. We know people like Peter were fishermen uh, in the family trade. And Jesus comes to them and says, listen, I want you to be my disciple. I want you to come and follow me. Do you feel the weight of it? Just the weight, how backwards this would have been? They should have been at kind of at home doing the the family trade and now Jesus calls them in and says, listen, I want you to follow me and I want you to be with me because this is what disciples did. They followed in the dust of their rabbi. One of the sayings in the first century is that literally disciples would be caked in the dust of the rabbi because they would follow them around wherever they went. Think about first century Palestine and just the, the dust and everything that's going on. You would literally be caked in the dust of your rabbi to be with them and to go out and eventually do what they did. And so this is kind of the earth-shattering call for these disciples here in the first century. Jesus, the the rabbi, the teacher, comes to them. And I think amongst all that happens in church life and a new year and lots of new vision series in churches, I'm sure, and looking ahead and pastors calling on people to kind of engage and get involved and there's more for the church, all of that is fine and fantastic, but... I often wonder if we miss the simplicity of what Jesus does here in Mark 3 for the call to be with him, to be with him. That's what I want to talk about for a couple minutes. And really my hope is here is actually to start a discussion that you'd have with your practice community. There's going to be a couple questions in a couple minutes here if you want to wrestle through them. Or if you're at home on your own, maybe just wrestle through these questions on your own or journal or think through this call to be with Jesus. Now, amongst all of this, um, we know with everything that kind of comes our way, it's really easy to be distracted from this primary call of being with Jesus. There's a guy named Sky Jathani, and we've used some of this content before, but I just think it's so important to come around again. In his book, With, Sky talks about a number of disoriented ways 
in which we posture ourselves towards God or to the king, or towards the kingdom of God or towards Jesus. Kind of these little disoriented ways in which we come at it, that if we're not careful and if we don't call them out, we can get caught in actually missing the point of discipleship and what it means to follow God. And here's the thing with these different postures. They're really sneaky because there's elements and pieces within them that actually sound good, but if we're not careful, can distract us from the, very, the, the most important thing, which is being with Jesus and obviously then going out and doing what he did. So I just want to take a couple minutes and look at Sky and what he says here in these four different kind of postures. The first one is this. Um, the first one is life from God. And this is really sneaky because this is a posture that ultimately wants God's blessing and gifts, but is not particularly interested in God himself. We want life from God. I think Laura, actually, Laura Fest brought this example up, and I've used this before as well. She brought this up in the summer when she was with us. Uh, there's a guy named Dr. Scott McKnight who teaches a New Testament uh, kind of theology course, and he teaches on the Gospels. And every semester in, in his introduction course, what he does is he begins with a set of questions, and he basically passes out some paper and does a little like reflection with the students about what the students think Jesus is like. And so he even before, getting in, even before getting into the content, ask the students to write down on a piece of paper what they think Jesus is like. And uh, there's actually 24 questions that are followed by a second set of questions. So they do these first 24 questions. And then the second set of questions basically are the same with the language slightly altered. And the students are actually asked to answer a second set of questions about their own personalities. And what McKnight says is it's so funny. Every single year, the results between the two sets of questions are very con consistent. The, the, the answers that the students would give about Jesus and about their own personality and their own character were very consistent. And the re reality is, is that Scott, and he's seen this over the years, has seen that everyone thinks Jesus is just like them. He goes on and says this, the test results suggest that even though we like to think we are becoming more like Jesus, the reverse is probably more the case. We try and make Jesus like ourselves. And so the life from God posture, again, it's sneaky because it sounds good. We're getting life from him. But ultimately what can happen is we can kind of twist this where God exists to, to, to supply what we need and desire, Right? Like it's about my life and what I get from God. And if you don't think this is true, just hit the little wheel on Instagram, the little search wheel, and watch the one minute pastor clips over and over. Um, most of these clips are shaped around what we can get from God. Just listen, discern a little bit of the language. I'm not a watchdog by any means, but just listen to those one minute clips and how it's designed in what we get from God. Again, McKnight goes on, he says, this posture is appealing because it doesn't ask us to change what we desire, what we seek, what we do, and how we live. All are shaped by consumerism and they're not disrupted. Our values and way of life are simply protected, or sorry, projected onto God and incorporated into a religious system in which we receive divine assistance to meet our desires. In this way, life from God is nothing more than consumerism with a Jesus sticker slapped on the bumper. Or as Mark Sayers, the great 
pastor and cultural critic, he would say, what we are experiencing is not the eradication of God from the Western mind, but rather the enthroning of the self as the greatest authority. Where basically we're at the center of the cosmos and God carries no inherent value, right? It's life from God. Um, we've seen this in the rise of uh, mental health and different things. There's a, a wonderful researcher, her name's Jean Tweed. She and a team at San Diego State have done a number of studies on how social media and different things are affecting adolescents and children in their mental health. Uh, her and a team of researchers analyzed mental health records collected between 1938 and 2007. And they looked at uh, like around 63,000 adults in their mental health records. And what was fascinating, and it's not really fascinating, we know this, it's not real news, but it helps put research to it. The team saw a dramatic increase in psychological problems since the 1930s, especially in things like depression. And ultimately what they concluded is that consumerism is a major reason for the rise in mental illness. That as we've consumed and have more at our fingertips and more, especially young people, have more, like just think about the technology we have in our pockets and immediate information and all of that, all that we have, that consumerism is really shaping us. The researchers say, said that we have become a culture that focuses on material things and less on relationships. And what's happened is this has really bled into a life from God posture. Where if I get from God what I want, I'm happy and things are good. But if I don't get from God what I want, then the opposite is true. And so we need to be careful of this little posture, this little disoriented kind of approach to how we view discipleship and guard ourselves from a life from God posture. So life from God. The second one, though, that Jastani um, uh, talks about is life over God. And this is a prominent thing in our culture right now. The life over God kind of posture loses the mystery and wonder of this world as God is basically abandoned in favor of proven formulas and controllable outcomes. Charles Taylor, a great philosopher in his book, uh, This Secular Age, talks a lot about this, how through the Enlightenment and over the last 300 years, how things have shifted and changed. That over 300 years ago, it was impossible not to believe what the scriptures handed down and what the gospels handed down. It was almost impossible. It was almost laughable not to believe in Western culture, um, the, the way of Jesus and, and the scriptures that we have. But obviously now in postmodernism and how we've kind of approached uh, culture as it is in our moment, we've entered into the exact, exact opposite. Now it's impossible to believe. And really, Jathani would say that the life over God posture manifests itself in two particular ways. First is an atheism, basically a, a rejection or lack of acknowledging in God in our moment, or deism. Like, I think we have atheism, but a lot of times we don't talk about deism, which affirms that God exists and created the universe, but believes he's now distant and relatively uninvolved in the matters of ordinary life. And there's all sorts of research that has shown this. Christian Smith, who is a researcher and a theologian at Notre Dame, the University of Notre Dame. I don't like their football team as much, but I'll take Christian Smith and his research. He looked at just the trends that were happening a number of years ago and basically said that we have lent into this thing in the Western world called moralistic therapeutic deism, where God exists a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth, 
But ultimately, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible. And he's talking about this being the primary worldview. He goes on and says that most people now are shaped by the central goal to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. And good people ultimately go to heaven when they die. Those were like the five tenets that rose to the top kind of in his research about people in the Western world and their view of God. Reginald Bibby, a researcher, a Canadian researcher, a number of years ago, basically through his research saw five things that people do not consider Jesus or the church relevant in Canada anymore. There's very little guilt for sin. It's not a big issue anymore. Most have faith and are content with it. Uh, most have very few reference points to Christianity in Canada. And then five was very interesting that in Canada, Canadians ultimately want you to be a Christian. They like the fact that you're a Christian, but don't want to own it for themselves. And so there is this posture instead of life with God, where we kind of put ourselves over God, that God effectively cuts out the middleman and gives us direct control of our lives. We take the control. So life from God, life over God, and then the third posture is life under God. And life under God sees God in simple cause and effect terms. We obey his commands and he blesses our lives and family. And ultimately, in the life under God posture, our role is to to determine what God approves of or disapproves of and work vigilantly to remain within those boundaries. So this could manifest itself in the parent who thinks that sending their kids to church all the time or Christian school will automatically mean that those kids will be good and that they'll follow Jesus and kind of stay out of trouble. This was like, I'm, this is like trauma for me. I'm just kidding. It's not really trauma, but like, this is like kind of conjures a lot in me as a youth pastor. Cause that was that, that was a lot of the ideas when I was a youth pastor, that if I just get my kid to go to youth group, they're just going to be amazing. And right. They're kind of, it's your job to keep them out of trouble, right? This could manifest in the person who thinks that if they read their Bible and pray every day, they won't suffer, which it happens a lot, this under God kind of posture or the person, and we see this all the time, who waits to have sex, kind of, you think about kind of purity culture and the, the messaging that came from that, the person who waits to have sex until they're married. And because of that, thinks that married sex life, that their married sex life will be euphoric. It will be amazing. And then oftentimes they're disappointed, right? Life under God is neat and tidy. It's sanitary, but it also leads to fear of staying within the moral lines. And it puts the emphasis on appeasing God through our behaviors. And listen, there's nothing wrong with the Bible talks a lot about holiness and how our behavior changes. But if that's the starting point, uh, it leads us in a posture that just is, is unending and unfulfilling and ultimately leads us in many ways, away from God. It leads to a form of rituals or morality without God's presence, right? So you have that, life under God, and then you have life for God. And this one is sneaky because for some of us that have been around the church for a while, this is kind of our expectation. This was kind of the mantra of like youth culture back when I was in youth group that we're called to change the world and we're called to do amazing things, right? This posture believes that the most significant life is expended expended accomplishing great things for God's service. 
And ultimately, this leads to an obsession with doing stuff for God to find legitimacy in our discipleship. The focus becomes on what we do, right? And we can, we can even creep into this in the church a little bit, where our expectation of the church is solely around what the church does. It's got to be humming. It's got to be good, right? Got to have the right courses and the right things for me to engage in. And everything's got to kind of be tailored so that I can do things. Where can I serve? What can I do? None of that is inherently bad in and of itself. But we can even create these types of cultures where it's a life for God posture. McKnight would go on and say, making God's mission into an idol is a common and serious fault of the life for God posture because it perpetuates the rebellion of Eden. It is a more subtle way of dethroning God and replacing him with something we can control. Sorry, that was Sky Jishani who said that. Where we just kind of control God through what we do. Basically, what this life for God posture does is it takes our fear of insignificance and throws gasoline on it. I love how the great philosopher, and you've heard me say this before, Dallas Willard always talked about that God isn't opposed to effort but to earning And yet the posture for many of us, including myself, is that I just earn stuff. I do stuff to be good. I do stuff for God because that's the way I'm wired, right? Personality and I'm an achiever and I got to get stuff done. And that's where, where the kind of the posture I come from. So you have these four particular postures. You have life from God. You have life over God. You have life under God. You have life for God. And then you get to Jesus in Mark chapter 3. Life with God. Everything that we're trying to do as a community is to cultivate life with God. Because life with God is predicated on the view that relationship is at the core of the cosmos. That you and I are called into this great dance with the Trinity. God the Father, with God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. See, there may be, it may be a little sneaky. It may even sound like some of those other postures we just talked about. There's like good that comes from them. But those other four postures seek to use God to achieve some other goal. It's almost like that God becomes a means to an end. And I think there's no better way in 2022 at the start of a new year to remind us that God, life with him is the end. The, I always joke, right? The LED fade on the back wall at church it will go away. It will change. Really cool kids lessons, all of that. That will, that will change over the years. The music, the sound, all, all of this kind of, these kinds of things will change over time. This is not about using God as a means to our own desires or even to our own fulfillment as a church. Jesus is the end. Life with God is different because its goal is not to use God. The goal, the end goal is Jesus and life with him. He's not a means to an end. And we need to be reminded of this at the beginning of a new year, but I also think for some of us, as we look at the other postures, again, we've looked at this before, it would just help us maybe think ahead about our life and our own discipleship. And even as a church, what we're trying to do here, this is all about life with God. This is all about coming to Jesus as he called these disciples in the first century. It's a reminder for you and I that he calls us into this beautiful way of life and he's given us the advocate. That we're, we have this Holy Spirit that comes alongside us and that 2022 could be actually a year where 
We want you to think about ways in which you can cultivate life with God more than anything, more than serving on a team, more than, and we need this, right? Obviously, more than what you could engage in even in church life. The deeper question we need to wrestle with today is, what am I gonna do to kind of cultivate this life with God, both when we gather as a corporate church and a corporate community, and then as we go out and live our lives? Jesus was ultimately concerned with us being connected to him. Listen to John 15, this is where we'll close. Jesus says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And then Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. And so, brothers and sisters, this is all about being connected to the vine who is Jesus. My prayer is that in everything we do in 2022, we would create a space for all of us, for yourself and myself included, to be with Jesus to be with him, to be caked in the dust of our rabbi. And so what we're gonna do here is a couple questions are just gonna come up for yourself, whether you're sitting at home in your pajamas, you're just so, just so lucky, or you're with your Praxis community. You know, we're gonna take now, it's really exciting, take the first Sunday of every month and come to you in this format so that we can be at, in homes throughout the city and engage this. But we just wanna take a couple minutes and a couple questions are gonna come up basically around this. As you look at the four postures that are really sneaky and can kind of creep in, which one do you see yourself kind of most susceptible to? For me, it's life for God. I can just get so driven in my moments and in my own story to do stuff for God that the practices, the disciplines, the life with God stuff can often get pushed to the side. What's it for you? Is it life over God, under God, from God? Maybe for some of you right now, you think about your own story and you're like, man, I, I think about how I'm often postured just to like want to get stuff from God. And when I don't get stuff from God, it doesn't go well for me. So think about, think about that. What are the, one of the, what's one of the, the four postures? Or maybe there's a couple that have kind of come to the surface today. Maybe the, uh, the blinkers on your dashboard have started to go and just making you aware of some of these things. And then the second question is just around this. What are you going to do this year to cultivate life with God? What for you, um, maybe it's a rule of life and creating a rule of life so that there's different practices and things in your life that you can be doing and we can be doing. Um, but maybe discuss them if you're with other people. Maybe what are things that you've even been, been prompted with today to say, you know what, these are things that I need to do to watch myself from the four postures that can be disoriented, but also think about ways in which I can, and you and I can create space to grow and to walk and to create space for life with God. 
Brothers and sisters, I just pray that you have an amazing new year. Love you guys so much. We cannot wait to be back together next week. But in the meantime, let's wrestle through this.